0: Why renter's insurance? Because fajitas. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like smoke-damaged furniture from fajita night gone wrong. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. In court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement, a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, there is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. In 1965, the body of Alberta O. Jones was found on the banks of the Ohio River in Louisville, Kentucky. Alberta was one of the first black women to pass the bar in Kentucky. She was the first female prosecutor, and she fought for civil rights in the Jim Crow era. Five years later, civil rights leader Leon Jordan was gunned down in front of his business in Kansas City. The cases are not connected, but the similarities between them are striking. Most of all, both cases remain unsolved. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie?
1: I am doing pretty good. How are you? Are you getting excited to hang out with all our favorite podcasters at CrimeCon?
0: I am. I'm really excited. And on the Friday night of CrimeCon, come down to I think it's the Fuse Sports Bar in the Opryland Hotel that we're staying in eight o'clock. A lot of podcasters are just going to be hanging out there. And if you're going to CrimeCon, you can use promo code INSIGHT to get 10% off your ticket. But honestly, you don't have to buy a ticket to come hang out with us in the evening. Tonight, we have a double header type episode. We're going to talk about two murders of civil rights leaders in the United States. I want to thank our listener, Rachel, who was able to provide some additional information pertaining to the case of Alberta Jones. So shout out to Rachel. And Alberta's case is the first one we're going to talk about tonight. Alberta Odell Jones was born in 1930 in Louisville, Kentucky to Sadie and Odell Jones. She grew up in Louisville during a time of what we call Jim Crow laws, which I know is an all too familiar term to Americans, but perhaps not all of our international listeners are necessarily familiar with it. The term Jim Crow came from a minstrel show that dates back from before the U.S. Civil War. A man named Thomas Rice would perform as a dim witted enslaved person. Being that it was a minstrel show, Rice performed in blackface for all white audiences, and the show's popularity eventually faded, but the term Jim Crow remained as a slur for those of African descent. So Jim Crow laws, in short, were anti-black laws designed to limit the freedom, movements, and the rights of the country's newly freed slave population after the Civil War. And that is condensing a whole lot of history into one sentence. It blocked voting, it segregated businesses, schools, bathrooms, and it banned interracial marriage. Alberta went to the state's largest and most progressive black high school, Louisville Central High School. She then attended a branch of the University of Louisville, the Louisville Municipal College for Negroes. It's while she was at the municipal college that the university integrated racially in 1951. So when she graduated, she was actually graduating from the University of Louisville, and she was third in her class. She initially started at the law school there, but she then transferred to Howard University in Washington, D.C. to finish law school, and there she graduated fourth in her class. It's probably a mix between her own experiences in Louisville as a Black child growing up under Jim Crow, and also her experiences at Howard University, which is a historically Black university that really formed her civic-minded ideas.
1: After law school, she returned to her mother's home in Louisville in 1959 and passed the bar exam. But Louisville was still segregated at most levels of society, with the exception of the university. Not only were there many individual businesses closed to black people, there were entire shopping districts closed. Businesses that allowed people of colour usually had policies about where they could sit and that forbade them from doing things like trying on clothes or even using the restroom. Kentucky is considered a border state between the north and the south of the United States, So we may not have the same stories of violent opposition, of racial integration coming out of Kentucky as we would hear from deep south states, but it was very much operating with discrimination as the law. And this was the city Alberta was returning to as a young, promising attorney. Alberta's most famous client in her law career was a young man from her neighbourhood named Cassius Clay. Now, Cassius was an amateur boxer and he'd won a gold medal at the Summer Olympics. He decided, after that win, to turn professional. Alberta negotiated his first contract. It wasn't uncommon for young and naive athletes to be taken advantage of when entering these professional athletic contracts. Alberta negotiated a favourable contract for Cassius, which included having some of his earnings be put into a trust until he turned 35. This assured that he'd still have some money left when his boxing career was over. Now, of course, as we know, Cassius Clay would have his name changed by the Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad, and he'd be known for the rest of his life as Muhammad Ali.
0: Alberta's most notable work wasn't in contract negotiations, even if it is her most famous, but rather in education. As part of the Independent Voters Association, she registered 6,000 African Americans to vote. Beyond that, though, she actually rented voting machines so that these newly registered voters would know how to vote. So this new block of voters Going into the polls, there was a massive turnover of leadership in the city. Those voted in were more progressive with civil rights. And within two years, the city outlawed discriminating people based on the color of their skin in any business that was otherwise open to the general public. Two years. Those lunch counters and movie theaters were now integrated and it was the first such open accommodations law in the South. We can draw a direct line between the voters Alberta registered and educated to the start of open accommodation laws in the South. Many other cities based their laws on what happened in Louisville. In 1964, Alberta became the first female prosecutor in Kentucky and not just the first female Black prosecutor, but the first female prosecutor. When she joined the Louisville Prosecutor's Office, she was assigned to the Domestic Relations Court, where she largely prosecuted domestic abuse cases. So we are looking at 1964, where domestic abuse laws were really just starting to be enforced due to the women's rights movement. And We have a black woman prosecuting white men for beating their wives in a southern town. It's not exactly a situation that was going to make her popular with some people. Shortly after becoming a prosecutor, she told a newspaper that being a black woman put two strikes against her already. But, quote, I've still got one strike left and I've seen people get home runs when all they've got left is one strike.
1: Alberta lived a pretty quiet life outside of her work. Now, quiet does seem like a strange word for a trailblazing woman, but she really did focus on her work, both as an attorney and her civil rights work. But she lived a pretty quiet life otherwise. She lived with her mother and her sister, she wasn't married, and it doesn't sound like from the research that we've done that she was dating anyone, that she generally spent her evenings at home with her family. On August 5, 1965, a friend of hers named Gladys called the house. Alberta knew Gladys from the neighbourhood that she grew up in, and Gladys wanted help filing a civil lawsuit against a beautician. Alberta explained to her that she didn't do that type of work anymore since she had become a prosecutor, and so Gladys accused her for being uppity. Alberta had left her neighbourhood, gone to college, gotten a law degree and worked in a field that was dominated by white men, but she was still living in her old neighbourhood. One thing she didn't want is for her friends and her neighbours, who she was working to help. She didn't want them to think that she was too good for them. So she went to meet Gladys that night, even though she was just as inclined to stay in. Her mother offered to go with her, but Alberta assured her that she'd be fine. It had to have been late when she left because her sister went to bed at 10pm and she saw Alberta still home reading in the living room. When Alberta left, she was driving a rental Ford Fairlane because her car was in the shop being repaired.
0: We know that Alberta did make it to see Gladys. According to Gladys, Alberta picked her up they went out for a bite to eat, and Gladys said that Alberta dropped her off. Gladys would be the last person known to see Alberta alive. At seven the next morning, her sister woke up and realized Alberta had never slept in her bed that night. So she asked their mom, where was Alberta? And her mom said she was up all night waiting on her, but she never showed. The first call was to Gladys, of course, but Gladys's daughter said she was already out. Then at 8.30 in the morning, Gladys hadn't called back, so Alberta's mother called the police to report her missing. Alberta's workplace also noticed something was wrong when she didn't show up. Daryl Owens, who was also an attorney in the prosecutor's office and is now a state representative in Kentucky, he was home that morning with a migraine, so he hadn't gone into work either but got a call that Alberta never showed up to work, and no one knew where she was. So he went ahead and went into the office at that point to see what was going on, and he was there when the police came by to notify them that Alberta was found. She was deceased, and she was found along the Ohio River. Owens went to identify her body, which spared her mother that task. He said in an interview with the Nunn Center for an oral history project that he was participating in, that he had gone to the home to visit the family after Alberta had been found, and he could hear Alberta's mother and sister crying before he even got to the house. Alberta was just 34 years old.
1: Some witnesses have come out and said that they saw two black men throwing a screaming woman into the backseat of a car similar to the rental car Alberta was driving. When the car was found near where the body was found, there was blood in the back seat. Alberta had been beaten with a brick and drowned in the river. It's believed that she may have already been unconscious when she was thrown into the water. It was unclear where exactly she went into the river. The police believe a boat ramp was used, but three years later, her purse was found hanging from the Sheeman-Minton Bridge making some believe that was a marking of the spot where she went over. It's unclear if the purse was there and overlooked for three years, or if someone went back years later and put it there. Regardless, all the purse contents were still there. A prosecutor is going to have a lot of enemies, particularly one whose entire job was to prosecute violent people. So one of the first tasks police took was to look through the cases Alberta worked on to identify anyone who may have a motive to want her dead. She even had an issue with a court officer who was bothering her, and she told her sister that she once got so annoyed that she hit him with her briefcase.
0: But she was also a civil rights activist who had a hand in the overturning of Jim Crow in Louisville, which brought on a different set of enemies – A lot of evidence was collected. The car was fingerprinted and vacuumed by the FBI. They took blood samples, of course, and collected cigarette butts that were also in the car. While a lot of this evidence would not necessarily make a huge difference in 1965, being able to DNA test some of that evidence today would be really useful. But the problem is most of that evidence is gone. It's been misplaced, uh, possibly accidentally destroyed. There's no single solid theory of who did this or why. A fingerprint from the car did survive the disappearing evidence trick. And in 2008, they were able to match it to a man from the area who was 17 at the time. He was interviewed and said he did hang around the area where witnesses saw a woman being pushed into the backseat of the car. But he also said he hitchhiked to get around. Possibly someone who had rented the car previously had picked him up. Obviously, he denied all involvement in the murder.
1: Another angle worked that didn't end up anywhere was looking into the Nation of Islam. Now, if you remember, Alberta negotiated a trust to be set up for Muhammad Ali. And this trust was 15% of his winnings and she jointly controlled it. The theory here is that the leader of the Nation of Islam wanted to get her out of the way so that they could control this percentage. Cold case investigators looking at the case have found no connection or evidence of this though. However, Alberta's sister believes that this was a hit, that whoever killed Alberta did it at someone else's request. She wasn't driving her usual car and she was out late at night when she almost never was. It's almost as though she was lured out and they knew what car to look for. Gladys, the woman she was going to see, Gladys was interviewed multiple times by authorities and she has since passed away. We are still going to admit her last name because we don't want to accuse her of being part of a plot, though we have to entertain it could be a possibility. It could be more innocent on Gladys's part, like someone overheard that Gladys was talking about Alberta coming over and then they jumped on the opportunity to put a plan into action.
0: This case has been on my radar since nearly the start of this podcast, but there was so little available information, but there is a renewed interest in the case. And it's been featured in some major national newspapers lately. We have to hope that the attention will bring out new information or possibly a reluctant witness. Time is running out for that, though. This happened over 50 years ago. From my understanding, the prevailing theory of the case among investigators is that the prime suspects are mostly deceased and that this was more likely linked to neighborhood issues rather than her work as a prosecutor.
1: There have been so many cases you have chose for us to cover lately, Charlie, that I've never heard of, and the two we're talking about today are examples of that. But I think the theory that her murder was connected with her civil rights work is definitely the most plausible to me. I think she definitely would have ruffled a few feathers, possibly of the wrong person. I do think that though, as you just said, Charlie, it's been 50 years. So with a time that has since lapsed, added on to the fact that the police probably didn't do a great job at gathering and preserving evidence, that we might never know what actually happened to Alberta, short of a confession that is. But I am glad that you brought this case to light. She was a pioneer, and she does deserve her legacy to be known.
0: The second case we're going to cover tonight is another civil rights pioneer whose murder has not been solved, evidence has gone missing, and it's unclear which of the various enemies he made along the way was involved. So you can see why I connected these two cases. This one hits close to home for me, having occurred in Kansas City. We're going to talk about the murder of Leon Jordan.
1: Leon Jordan was born in 1905, and he spent most of his childhood growing up near 12th and Vine, which was right in the heart of a very vibrant African-American community. His father was incredibly politically active. He fought Jim Crow laws at the state level as early as 1913. His father also ran a social and gambling club called The Autumn Leaf, which was very successful. A lot of the money was used to fund political efforts, but it also had the Jordan family living in comfort. But when Leon was 13, his father died and his fortune turned. The family did okay, but they left Vine Street and moved to a house on the edge of the white area of town. At 15, largely due to pressure to help his family financially, because of his father's war hero stories, stories that weren't entirely true, but regardless, Leon joined the army. It was a few months before they realised that he was only 15, and they sent him back home. After high school at Lincoln High School in Kansas City, he went to Washburn College in Topeka, His girlfriend and later wife, Orchid, was attending Wilberforce University in Ohio, so he transferred out there to be with her.
0: In 1936, Leon and Orchid had wed, and they were back in Kansas City, and Leon became a police officer. On his application, he listed an adopted daughter, and she's listed on the 1940 census as living with the family, But for some reason, she didn't stay with them forever. There were rumors that she was Leon's biological child born out of wedlock, and they claimed she was adopted when he got custody of her. At some point when she was still a child, she left the home. No one seems to know exactly why or where she went, and the couple never had any additional children. In 1947, Leon and Orchid divorced but remarried within a few months and moved to Liberia, where Leon had the opportunity to organize and train the police forces there. This seemed like a good career move. Black police officers in Kansas City were continually passed up for advancement. Even after a decade of service, they'd barely be higher than when they started. By working in Liberia on a large project like this, Leon hoped that experience would mean a bump up in status in Kansas City. It didn't work out this way. Leon was seen as black first and an experienced police officer second. He went back and forth between Kansas City and Liberia for a while before returning to Kansas City in 1955 for good. And he came home to the middle of the civil rights movement.
1: Just a year before, the Supreme Court ordered schools desegregated and struck down the law of separate but equal. In a few years, Martin Luther King Jr. would march in Birmingham. Leon and other influential members of the African-American community were ready to act. In 1961, Leon was at the founding meeting of Kansas City's chapter of the Congress of Racial Equity, and in 1962, he founded Freedom Inc., which was a political activism organization, and still is. He and Bruce R. Watkins served as co chairs and they led the way in the integration efforts of Kansas City. Leon believed, as Alberta did, that voting was the key, and Freedom Inc. still provides endorsements and voting information in Kansas City to this very day. And then in 1964, he was elected to the Missouri House of Representatives and was actively campaigning for his re election when he was murdered. In addition to his political work, Leon owned the Green Duck Tavern, which was located on the corner of 26 and Prospect. Attached to the tavern was a liquor store he also owned, and there was a door between the two of them that linked them.
0: On July 15th, 1970, there were four people at the tavern after a close. There was the barmaid, Catherine, and the woman who ran the attached liquor store named Gussie. They both left around 12.45, and Gussie saw a teen boy, probably around 13, zipping by on his bicycle. Still at the bar was Kenneth Irvin. He arrived at 11.45 to begin cleanup, and this was a usual routine for them. Leon would lock the bar behind him, locking Kenneth in. Kenneth would then clean the place overnight and also serve as an overnight security guard until someone came in, to open up the next morning and let him out, so he was literally locked inside the building with no way out. Leon had left the tavern with two places to go. He had initially intended to go home and have ice cream with his wife, and that's what she believed the plan to still be, but he also had a friend from out of town who had called up to the tavern to see if he wanted to get together. This friend was a woman and Leon grabbed a bottle of cognac and some soda on his way out to bring over to her. With his wife waiting at home, it's unclear how long he intended to visit with his friend. Leon was known to be unfaithful to his wife, so we don't really even know the nature of this friendship. But in the end, it wouldn't matter because he never even made it to his car.
1: Leon always carried a gun with him, particularly at night so he had a bag with the cognac and soda in one hand and his gun in the other. It is believed he was replacing the gun to his pocket when he was shot. A car drove up and shot him from inside the vehicle. When he was on the ground, the shooter got out of the car and then shot him twice, more at a close range, once in the groin and once in the chest. The gun was later found in an overgrown lot a half a mile away, and the car was found about a half a mile past that, so the killers got rid of the evidence rather quickly. Both the gun and the car would turn out to be stolen, but the gun will come up again later in the story. Kenneth first told police that he didn't see anything, that he was in the back of the bar and Leon was shot out front. He failed to polygraph on that, and then he said that he actually saw a black man of average height with an afro, and he was dressed in a suit holding a gun and standing over Leon's body. He then heard a car speeding off as he called the police. That he couldn't leave the building until someone got there to let him out, so he called Orchid and Gussie to tell them what happened. Both of them arrived before the police
0: two teenage boys would come forward claiming they saw the murder. They picked two men out of a lineup, and those men were arrested and charged just days later. But charges were dismissed when it became obvious that the boys had made up the story. They were there that night, but only after Leon was shot, so it's really likely the activity from the police brought them out there but because they saw the crime scene, they knew details that made it sound like they really were there when Leon was shot. This kind of fell apart between polygraphs and changing statements, and then the men they identified had alibis. Three years later, three more men were arrested. A different man had gotten arrested and said he had information on Leon's murder that he would be all too happy to share in exchange for some consideration for his current predicament. He said that James Willis had confessed to him that he was hired as a hitman, and he further implicated Maynard Cooper and Doc Dearborn. Now, Doc was a friend of Leon's in the past. Leon had helped him out when he would get into minor scrapes with the law. But there was one thing Leon did not tolerate, and that was illicit drugs. He was vehemently anti-drugs and felt drug use was destroying communities. So he and Doc were not necessarily friendly at the time of his murder because Leon refused to intervene when Doc had recently gotten caught up with some drug charges.
1: The strongest case was against James Willis, so he went to trial first. There were two key witnesses against him, the jailhouse informant and Kenneth, the night watchman from the Green Duck. Kenneth told police a third story at this point. This time, he admitted that he recognised the man standing over Leon's body, and it was James Willis. He hadn't said anything before because he was worried for his life. The jailhouse informant was not terribly credible on the stand. He cooperated because there was something in it for him, and he had a lengthy criminal record. His story also changed a bit here and there with the retellings. Now, the defence tore his story apart during cross-examination. And as for Kenneth, well, he'd changed his story three times. First, he said he didn't see anything, then he said he saw a man he didn't recognise, and then he finally said it was James Willis. Even with his reasoning for this denial, it seemed shaky. Willis's defence was largely based on his alibi. He had witnesses who said that they were in a car with him on the way to California at the time of the murder. He was driving out to LA with cars that he had planned to sell there. So he didn't just have witnesses, he also had receipts from along the way. The state knew about this alibi the entire time, but it struck them as being contrived. This was three years later. Who saves motel receipts for three years except for someone concerned with proving where they were that night? They were unable to shake his alibi, though, and they gave the jury the theory that perhaps he flew out to Missouri, committed the murder, and then flew back out west. But they didn't have anything to prove this either – There were no flight logs listing him as a passenger and no one saying they saw him do this. They had nothing.
0: There are a lot of people who still believe Willis was involved, but the jury did acquit him. They didn't believe the witnesses beyond a reasonable doubt. And if the jury didn't believe the informant on Willis, they certainly weren't going to believe him on the other two, Maynard Cooper and Doc Dearborn. So the charges against them were dropped without even going to trial. There were other theories of the crime. One was that this was the jealous husband of a woman that Leon was having an affair with, and honestly, the shot to the groin kind of makes this seem like a possibility. Or perhaps this was the Black Panthers who Leon opposed, or possibly a rival politician trying to get the very influential Leon Jordan out of the way. All avenues investigated led to nowhere. But the strongest theory of the crime that persists in Kansas City today is that this was a mob hit, carried out by members of the Black Mafia. Leon influenced a large block of voters, and he was no friend of the mob. La Cosa Nostra in Kansas City operated in the north part of the city, but they largely controlled parts of Kansas City that were historically Black, like the 18th and Vine area. Joe Santamano specifically was used to controlling this area through bribery and intimidation. Kansas City neighborhoods were at the time and are still today to some degree largely segregated due to some pretty extreme racial housing laws that occurred during the development of many of the residential areas of the city. And you can read a whole lot more on this in a book called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. Highly recommend it. It explains so much. And being from Kansas City, well, you know, living in Kansas City now, it explains the entire formation of my own neighborhood. But back to the story. When the mafia in the North wanted something done in a Black area of town, they would call what was known as the Black Mafia. Because of the relationship between La Cosa Nostra and the Black Mafia, the mob was very influential over Black voters in the days before Freedom, Inc., in the days before Leon Jordan and Bruce R. Watkins, they were taking this over. Freedom, Inc. managed to elect seven of the first eight candidates they got on the ballot. So obviously a political powerhouse.
1: Leon's biggest offence to the mafia was his inability to be bought. He was in the political game to further his community goals and to see to their needs. He could not be persuaded, and by persuaded we mean bribed, to back a politician or a cause that did not support his own goals. Multiple people over the years have pointed to Joe Santamato as ordering the hit, including his own son. The gun had been tied back to a robbery from five years before Leon's death, and it's believed it was fenced through the mob. So that's another connection to the mafia if they did order the hit and provided the weapon. But others believe it may have been done as a freebie. No one told the Black Mafia to do it, they just did it to gain favour, knowing Cosa Nostra would be happier without Leon Jordan around. The case has been re examined a few times, and like with Alberta Jones, quite a bit of evidence went missing. There were three important pieces that went missing that were later found. One was a fingerprint card with partial prints taken from the gun. The second was the ballistics on the gun, and the third was the gun itself. Finding the gun came after finding the fingerprint card. When the card was found, someone in the crime lab noticed that the gun's serial number was written on the card, so they ran that number through a weapons tracking system in 2010 and it came back with a hit. The gun had been used in a 1997 shooting by a police officer. So basically what appears to have happened is the shotgun had been sold outside of the police department accidentally, possibly at a police auction in 1976. It was then bought back by the police department by a gun shop in 1977. Without the police connecting, it was the gun they sold. So yes, the police supposedly sold a murder weapon and then unknowingly bought it back one year later and modernised at some point in the 1970s. There are some who question this story as to how the gun was lost for so long. At best, the police were sloppy with their handling of the weapon from an unsolved crime of a prominent black politician, and there is absolutely no excuse for that.
0: The gun was a shotgun, so it wasn't something that police tend to, you know, holster at the hip, so it largely stayed in a patrol car. The way it ended up being used is that in November 1997, a man pulled a gun during an incident with police and a police officer shot him in the leg with the shotgun. Because it was a police shooting, the gun was analyzed by the crime lab and the serial number was entered into the database before it was returned to service. So in 2010, when the serial number from the fingerprint card was entered in, The gun was tracked down and recovered from the patrol car and readmitted as evidence in the Leon Jordan homicide. If not for that police shooting, it may still have been in the trunk of a patrol car today. It's doubtful there is any evidence worth anything on that weapon. It was outside police department for a year. It was in service for 20 years before being involved in a police shooting. And then it was returned to service for an additional 13 years before being readmitted into evidence, not to mention the modifications. Even if they could somehow, some way pull DNA or evidence from the Leon Jordan murder off that gun, they would never get it admitted into court. It is wholly contaminated.
1: As I said with Alberta Jones, this was a case that I'd never heard of, but reading through your notes, Charlie, it's just mind-blowing to me about the misplacement of evidence, about how they didn't pick up it was their gun when they brought it back, how it could be sold in the first place. I don't understand how that could happen. This wasn't just some guy on the streets. This was something that's a person that was important in society. As we've said, a prominent civil rights person. I don't understand how it could happen. I don't understand how this crime could not have been solved sooner.
0: There are a couple of things that strike me in these cases. One that really hit me the most as I was reading about both of them is how largely unknown they are in spite of the groundbreaking civil rights work they did in their communities. Yes, the movement needed national leaders, but the anti-segregation laws in Louisville that were a result of Alberta Jones' work were the blueprint for similar laws throughout the South. Freedom, Inc., founded by Leon Jordan, was used as an example by other cities when forming their own similar political activism organizations these grassroots armies of pioneers, they made the progress in the United States. And I think it's these type of groups who are going to continue making progress. The other thing that struck me hardest with this is the missing evidence. It's incredibly frustrating to me. I don't live in Louisville, so I can't necessarily speak to that. But I do know about Kansas City. And I can see at least implicit bias playing a role in the missing evidence in the Leon Jordan case. I'm not saying someone said, oh, this is just a Black politician, bar owner, he was killed and we don't really care. I mean, someone could have said that. But at the very least, they didn't care enough to preserve the evidence of a prominent Black politician. And another thing that really strikes me while we're on this topic, is the lack of media coverage about this lost evidence. I can't imagine other high-profile cases having significant amounts of lost evidence and people just shrugging or not making a comment at all. Every Kansas Cityan should know the name Leon Jordan, but they don't, and I know they don't. My kids go to a school where the student population is only 15% white, and Likely due to the racial makeup of their school, they are getting a much better education on civil rights than I did in my 90% white high school. But I asked them. They've never heard of Leon Jordan. We have to remember these stories. These are people who risked everything just as much as Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. It's shameful that the evidence in Alberta and Leon's cases has gone missing. It's shameful that more people in their own cities don't know their names. Louisville is making a change, and they hung a banner celebrating Alberta Jones downtown. That's why it's been in the papers lately. In the last month, the University of Missouri put on a play about the life of Leon Jordan. Unfortunately, it had a very limited run, but... It will hopefully be staged again and perhaps even going into the high schools in the area to present his story. Like you said, Allie, these legacies deserve to be known.